Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture this morning to Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. You're using the Pew Bible there in front of you this morning, page 927. Reminder that we've been talking about the continuing acts of the risen Lord. The fact that Jesus Christ is not done with His church. He is building His church here in the book of Acts. He is birthing His church in the book of Acts. He's working in His church. And He's still working in His church today. He's still working in this church today. Praise the Lord. He's not done with us. We don't study the book of Acts as a mere historical lesson. We're not here because we want to know just history. We want to know the book of Acts because we believe that it has something to tell us. It has something to teach us. It can and will and does actually change us. And so we pray that not only would we faithfully read God's Word today, but that God's Word would read us today. <laughs> show us the truth. Show us how we might need even to change. Would you stand with me out of reverence, respect for God's Word this morning as we read Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, 
Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel thought. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy word. But through the power of your Son, of the gospel, give us endless hope and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been frustrated? Be honest. I realize it might be easier for some people to be frustrated quicker than others. But have you ever been frustrated? 
Have you ever experienced that feeling of when you're trying to accomplish a goal, trying to finish or complete a task, trying to get somewhere, and at every turn on your course to accomplishing that goal, every attempt to complete that task, every time you think you're getting somewhere, there are complications. There are speed bumps. There are things that slow you down, that grind the progress you thought that you were making, causing it to come to a complete stop. Maybe sometimes the frustration can mount because we thought the task before us was going to be easy. It wasn't going to take much effort. Until we got into the job only to find out just how much time, how much effort, and how much sacrifice it would require of us. My wife and I had this experience when we were trying to sell our house in Kentucky. We put the house on the market. The first day, three offers. We choose an offer, started down that path of closing on this house, And then the issue of the chimney arose after the inspection. And so we had to get a second opinion on the chimney and a third opinion on the chimney. And there was waiting and there was going back and forth and there was stress trying to figure out what needed to be done. There was pressure, there was frustration that mounted to the point where we were about to say, hey, either you want the house or you don't. Either we can get this done or we can find another buyer. We are ready to be done with this. Thankfully, we made it happen and they bought the house and the rest is history. But isn't that sometimes where frustration leads us? It leads us to that place where we are so frustrated that we are willing to give up. We're willing to say, I'm done with this. It leads us to the place where we think, you know, there is a way out of this frustration. I can just forsake the goal. I can just forsake the task. Whatever destination I was trying to get to, I can just find a way to be satisfied with not getting there. I can just give up on it. What about in gospel ministry? Do frustrations ever mount up in gospel ministry? When you're attempting to serve the Lord, attempting to serve His church, attempting to be a disciple and disciple maker, to lead other people to the Lord, to grow their faith. As you're trying to do these things, you meet frustrations, you meet discouragement, you come face to face with fear. And we're not talking about little speed bumps. We're talking about being so overwhelmed with frustration, so dominated by our fears, so down and out with our discouragement that we say, what am I doing all of this for? It's not worth it. There's something else I can give my time to. There's something else that's more worthwhile, more beneficial, more satisfying than trying to continue to run my head into the wall with this gospel ministry 
and we say to God, it's too hard. It's too difficult. I tried to be a part of gospel ministry. I tried to be a faithful disciple. I tried to be a faithful disciple maker. I tried to give you everything I had, Lord, but nothing happened. But things didn't go the way that I thought they were going to go. People didn't respond how I wanted them to respond. I didn't get my way. I'm not being successful. There has to be an easier way. And there is an easier way. I give up on gospel ministry. I will just turn in on myself, look out for myself, take care of myself, keep to myself. I'll still go to church, but that's it. Don't, think, don't ask anything more of me because I've tried it. And I was only frustrated, discouraged, overcome with fear. That isn't what you want from your follower, is it, Lord? When gospel ministry frustra frustrations and fears mount up, it's easy to look for reasons to forsake gospel ministry. Let me ask you this. Do you think that you are the only one who's ever experienced this? Are you the only one who's had frustrations in gospel ministry? Are you the only one who, who's had discouragement? Are you the only one who's been fearful in pursuing gospel ministry? Our text comes to us this morning and put, puts Paul on display. And in my thinking, if anyone should be frustrated with gospel ministry... It could have been the Apostle Paul. If anyone had the right to be fearful in the midst of gospel ministry, it was the Apostle Paul. If anyone ever had a reason to give up on gospel ministry, to give up on spreading the gospel, to give up on trying to get the good news of Jesus Christ into people's lives so that the Holy Spirit might open blind eyes so that they believe, it was Paul. But what does Paul do? He persists. He leaves the city of Athens, makes his way 46 miles to another major city named Corinth. Corinth was a commercial epicenter of the Roman Empire. It was located on an isthmus, a strip of land between two bodies of water. Ships would come and dock on one side and have their cargo unloaded, carried three and a half miles across the strip of land and then reloaded on a, another ship. Sometimes if it was a smaller ship, they would actually lift the whole boat out of the water and cart it to the other side. They did this to save time and sometimes save cargo. There were treacherous waters there along the coast of what we know today to be Greece. Corinth. Not only was a commercial hub, but it was also a diverse commercial hub. People from all over the Roman Empire were living here, and they were also traveling through Corinth. It's thought to be one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at this time, with 750,000 people living there during Paul's day. Not only was Corinth a commercial city, not only was it a diverse city, it was also a morally corrupt city. It contained the temple of Aphrodite, where it was said that there were 10,000 cult priests.
prostitutes. The Corinthian people did not have the reputation for being morally upstanding people. In fact, people used the term Corinthian as a derogatory term towards other people. Let's just say that when Paul was walking into the city of Corinth, he was not thinking about how easy the gospel ministry was going to be. But what does he do? When he arrives, he finds a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They're not native Corinthians, but they have been kicked out of Rome in 49 AD by the Roman Emperor Claudius. Claudius, in fact, had all the Jews kicked out of Rome because it appears the message of Christ had begun to start a disturbance among the Jewish synagogues. And so Paul finds this couple, he stays with this couple because they're of the same trade, they're tent makers. Specifically, tent makers are those who worked with leather, and so while they did make tents, their job also could have expanded to other items made out of leather as well. But this connection between Paul and Aquila and Priscilla becomes an important connection because they actually advance the gospel together. We'll see this couple more in the book of Acts as the gospel goes forth. Priscilla and Aquila, if they are not Christians here in these verses, they become Christians and are used in the church in Corinth and in other churches as well. But why is Paul staying with them? I think we can say that Paul's staying with them because he has this bivocational role. He's supporting himself through tent making while still every Sabbath, as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and the Greeks who were there. And what is it that Paul is reasoning with them about? He's reasoning with them about the scriptures. The same thing is said in Acts 17 too, when Paul was in Thessalonica. The same thing is said in the city of Salamis on the island of Cyprus, where he went into the synagogue and proclaimed the word of the Lord. Wherever Paul went, what's fascinating is that he didn't have to strategize. Okay, here I am, and now, now what is it that I'm going to do? He knew what people needed. It's what all people need. All people need the gospel. You could pick Paul up and you could put him anywhere. And what would he do? He'd start by preaching the gospel. And that's what he was doing there in the synagogue. He was preaching the gospel. That's what Paul's passion was. It had not changed. And he was doing exactly what he says in Romans. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first. And so Paul would go to the synagogues and he would plead with his brothers fellow Jews, but it was also to go to the Greeks, the Gentiles. And that's what Paul is doing when his friends, Silas and Timothy, arrived from Macedonia. Paul had left Silas and Timothy behind to continue to minister in churches in Macedonia, and now they join up with Paul here in Corinth. And most likely, what we see here is that Silas and Timothy bring financial aid to Paul. That's why it says then that Paul was occupied 
with the Word. Paul was able to be more occupied with the Word now because he had been provided for financially. He didn't have to continue in a bivocational role. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11.9 says this to the church in Corinth. And when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So that's what Silas and Timothy did. They brought this financial aid so that Paul could devote his complete time to the ministry of the Word. And look at what it says there in verse 5. Paul was occupied with the Word. I, I read one translation that said this. Paul was wholly absorbed with the Word. He wanted people to know the Word. He wanted people to hear the Word. He wanted people to be convicted by the Word. He wanted people to be changed by the Word. And being occupied with the Word meant this. He proclaimed the gospel. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, that God's anointed one, that God, the one that God had promised who would come and usher in the kingdom of heaven, heaven, the one God had promised who would rule over his people to provide salvation, security, peace, and rest, that this one is no one other than Jesus Christ himself. And that the only way to know this salvation and to know this security and peace, the only way to know this life, and the only way to know God and be able to rightly worship God is to believe in the name of this Jesus, to confess that He is Lord. What I love about this is that Paul was... Proclaiming the gospel, he was reasoning with them from the scriptures, ministering the word before Silas and Timothy came, right? And after they come and provide this financial gift to him so that he no longer has to make tents, what does he think the ministry in Corinth needs? What does Paul do next? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, let's see, there's already the ministry of the Word. What else can I do? He doesn't say, how can I diversify this ministry in order to reach more people and somehow draw them in? No, that's not it. What does he say? Now that I am freer to minister what do these people need? I know exactly what they need. They need more of the Word. They need to hear more about the Gospel. They need to hear more about Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. Here is what Paul knew that we would do well to pay attention to and heed. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that is very easy to pay lip service to. 
Ah, yes, this is what we believe. But it is very different, my friends, when you have to do it. We know preaching is important, but not too much preaching. We know the Word is important, but not too much of the Word. And it absolutely breaks my heart because too many churches say, you do those things and you will never grow the church. My friends, that is the only way Jesus Christ grows His church. Let us be those people who are occupied with the Word. Let us be wholly absorbed with the Word. Let us testify to the undeniable fact that Jesus Christ is God's anointed one sent from heaven above who humbled himself, took on flesh, made himself nothing, and became a servant who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, but who three days later God raised from the dead. The one who God has highly exalted so that at the name of Jesus, the only name by which any man, woman, or child might be saved and forgiven of their sin, it is that name that God has exalted above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. It was that declaration that was met with opposition and reviling against Paul. Paul was rejected just like Christ was rejected. The gospel ministry is not without its opposition. It's not without its difficulties. It's not without its frustrations. It didn't matter how polished or well-spoken or flawless Paul's presentation was. These people would not believe. And it wasn't that they were just indifferent, saying, well, Paul, it's nice for you to believe this, but I just really don't care about this stuff. No, they were opposed to it. They were adamantly against it. They did everything to revile Paul. That is, they defamed him. They slandered him. They spoke evil against him. Are you frustrated yet, Paul? Are you discouraged yet? Are you fearful to say anything more? Speak again because of what they might say against you or even worse, do to you? Where would you be in this moment? Paul, however, gives them a warning. He shakes the dust from his garment and he says, in essence, I'm done with you. You are accountable to God. I've told you the truth. I've told you the gospel. You know all the points. You have all of the knowledge about it, but you have rejected it. You have rejected me, but even more so, you've rejected Christ. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I've done everything that I can do. There is nothing more except to take this same message now and take it to the Gentiles. And Paul takes this idea of their blood being upon their own heads from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33. That's where the Lord tells Ezekiel that he is Israel's watchman. And that if he sees danger coming and warns the people, but they do not heed the warning and are destroyed, their blood is upon their own heads because they heard but did not respond to the warning. God warns Ezekiel, however, though, in that same passage, if you see the judgment coming, but do not warn the wicked people to turn from their wickedness, 
that the watchman would be judged. We cannot change people. We cannot make people heed the warning, but woe to us if we see the judgment coming and keep silent. Paul did not keep silent. And after Paul states that he officially has nothing more to do with this group from the synagogue, what does he do? He begins to lodge with this man named Titius Justus, a Gentile who practiced Judaism without fully becoming a convert to, convu- to Judaism, whose house was where? Where was his house? Right next door to the synagogue. <laughs> I think it tells us something. Paul hadn't made his pronouncement against the group, but he had not completely given up on them. He was living right next door to them. And then finally, Paul sees some fruit, doesn't he? Fruit from a ministry that up to this point, in Corinth at least, had been only frustration. But now what? But Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. This is salvation. This is how people are saved from the wrath to come. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jewish man and his entire household believed and were saved. What rejoicing. But that was not all, was it? What else happened? Many Corinthians believed as well. We don't have a number except many. And then what? It says that they believed and they were baptized. Baptism coming after true belief and true repentance. And this is the pattern that we've seen in Acts over and over and over again. You believe and you are baptized. You believe and you are baptized. You believe and you are baptized. And it might say to you this morning that there could very well be a problem in your life if you have believed, but if there is no baptism, if there is no public profession of faith, if there is no public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what these people were doing in this very corrupt city. They worried about what people were going to think of them? No. Why not? Because Jesus Christ was more important to them than what other people thought. Here it is, these Gentiles, Corinthians, from one of the most morally bankrupt cities in the Roman Empire, now publicly displaying their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying Him with, in His death and resurrection through this visible proclamation of the gospel. What amazing fruit, right? I mean, think about it. Up to this point, we haven't seen any fruit, and now we see this fruit come We see people turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We see people forsake their sinful lifestyles and say, I want to follow Jesus. Where would Paul be after seeing all of that faith? We would think he'd be on a high. He'd be soaring, standing on top of a mountain. But that's not where Jesus finds Paul, is it? How do we know that? Because of what Jesus says to Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to Paul in a vision of the night. 
We've already seen that Peter had a vision. We see that Paul had a vision already of the Macedonian man. All of these visions are instructive for what we see happen then in the future. And Jesus knows the future, but now he comes to Paul, why? To assure Paul, to speak comforting, soothing, encouraging words. He speaks words to build confidence, to give courage. And how might we hear Jesus' words to Paul today? Might they even speak to us? Might they even comfort and encourage us? Might they even give us assurance in the midst of gospel ministry frustrations, in the midst of gospel ministry fears, in the midst of gospel ministry discouragement, in the midst of gospel ministry doubt? Might these words from the Lord Himself land upon our ears and bring assurance to our souls today? Jesus gives assurance to us so that we persist in gospel ministry. So how does he assure us? Four things this morning. Number one, Jesus assures us to persist in gospel ministry with his presence. Jesus assures us to persist in gospel ministry with his presence. I find this to be a very reassuring truth. Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid while he was doing what the Lord had called him to do. While he was being faithful, while he was doing the Lord's will, Paul was scared and fearful. Paul was a man just like us. And what was it that this fear tempted Paul to do? It tempted him to be quiet, to shut his mouth, to stop proclaiming the gospel, to stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus. His fear was so great that he was about to be silent. Are you afraid? And do you want to be silent? Do you want to try to hide your Christianity? Hide the fact that you know Christ and follow Him? Would you rather that God had called you to the vacationing Christian life? Don't bother me. I'm on vacation. It's easier to to stop speaking and be silent. But dear brothers and sisters, we cannot be silent for one simple reason. God is not silent. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. This is why people need to know Jesus, because Jesus is God's final and full word. There is no other word to be spoken by God. And people must hear this word that comes through Jesus Christ. 
do not fear about speaking and do not be silent because Jesus promises you his presence. Do not be afraid, Paul, because I am with you. What more comforting words, what more encouraging words, what more soothing words and assuring words could our Lord speak than those? I am with you. What is stopping you? What is it that is troubling you? What is it that is making you afraid? The Lord Jesus Christ, whom God appointed heir of all things. The Lord Jesus Christ, through whom God created the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. The Lord Jesus Christ, who upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has made purification for your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, is with you. What have you to fear? This is God's promise to those whom he uses throughout his word. God calls Moses in Exodus 3 and says, I will be with you. God calls Joshua in Joshua 1 and says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God calls Jeremiah the prophet. And he says this, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and tells his servant this, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In fact, what is one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples in the book of Matthew. After he gives it them what we call the Great Commission, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What does the assurance that Jesus is with us do to us? It casts out fear so that we can faithfully persist in gospel ministry. How do you know that Jesus is with you? How do you know that Jesus is with us? Because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have the Spirit of Christ. And we need these words which are so simple but so necessary. Words that break through the brokenness Words that break through the frustration. Words that break through the the discouragement and doubt. Words that break through paralyzing fear and attempts to take over our lives. Words that bring ultimate freedom to the pursuit of gospel ministry. And it's these words that Jesus says to us, I'm with you. Number two. Jesus assures us to persist in gospel ministry with his protection. With his protection. This is the next promise, isn't it, that we see Jesus make to Paul here? Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. You can go on, Paul, because I will not let physical harm come to you. And I think we need to understand this promise that Jesus is making to Paul in the larger context of Paul's ministry. 
Did Jesus promise to protect Paul from harm for the rest of his life? No, it appears this promise is for the time that he is to spend in Corinth. We could think of other times in Paul's life when he encountered harm. He was stoned, he was beaten, he was thrown into prison. He experienced physical harm and persecution and pain as a minister of the gospel. But here, Jesus promises to protect him even from harm so that he can continue on. In fact, there are many other people that we could look to in the Bible as well. We think of Stephen from the book of Acts. He was stoned to death. It's difficult for us then to take this promise of no harm ever coming to Paul as a universal promise from Jesus Christ to us today. There have been many, many, many Christians throughout the ages who have been harmed simply because they followed Christ. Why didn't Jesus assure them that while they were persisting in gospel ministry? We don't know. We, know, we do know, though, that God does all things for good for those who love Him and that God is set to get glory from all things and that the lives of such people who have been harmed or killed for the cause of Christ shine as testimonies and lights in our dark world. We cannot take this to be a universal promise, but we can still know that Jesus is our ultimate protector and that what we have in Him is eternally protected and can never be taken away. It makes me think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're reminded that Jesus Christ, what He has done for us through the cross and through His resurrection, protects us ultimately from God's wrath. And while we may not have the same promise of no harm, we are still assured that we are ultimately protected by our Lord. Protected in such a way that we are never harmed and that the love of God in Christ Jesus is ever taken away from us. Number three, Jesus assures us to persist in gospel ministry with His perspective. With His perspective. I love what Jesus does here next. He 
provides a different perspective, a completely foreign perspective to us because it's a perspective you cannot see with your own eyes. It's a perspective you don't even know exists if Jesus hadn't said these words. And what does he say? (laughs) I have many people in this city. Paul, do you want to be encouraged? Paul, do you want assurance that the gospel ministry that you engage in will be successful, will be fruitful? Paul, do you want to see blessing? Here is my promise. I have many people who I have chosen to be my people in this city. They are there, Paul. They are around you. They don't even know it yet. You don't even know it, who they are, but they are there. And what does Paul do then with that instruction, that information? Well, since Jesus has already chosen them, since Jesus knows who are His, I don't need to do anything. The ministry is done, over with, right? That couldn't be further from the truth. No, Jesus told him that He had many of His people in the city so Paul would get up and go out and preach the gospel. So that Paul would evangelize, so that Paul would make disciples Jesus assured Paul that these words, that he had his own people there in the city, would cause Paul to work, would cause Paul to proclaim the gospel, would cause Paul to get to work. (laughs) Think about this in a sense of predestination. Predestination doesn't pulverize evangelism. What do we see it do here? It prompts, promotes, and powers evangelism. And I love what Jesus says. Jesus says, my people. They are mine, Jesus says. They are his possession. They are his and they will come to him. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They will hear his voice through the preaching of the gospel and they will come to their good shepherd, the shepherd who laid down his life to purchase them for his own. My people, Jesus says, and their salvation is so certain, Jesus' calling and work is so effectual, it's as good as done. My people, Paul, are in this city, so get up and go out and tell them the gospel. And that's how we can say, as those who have been saved, Jesus is mine because we are first and foremost his. That's why Paul stayed there a year and a half. He was teaching the word. He was spreading the word. He kept persisting in gospel ministry after the assurance that the Lord had many people who would be saved. To which I wonder, Lord, how many people are yours in this area? I don't have a number. Paul didn't have a number. But I believe there are some. They don't even know it yet. We don't even know it yet. But they are Christ's, and we are to go out there and tell people the gospel. This isn't an excuse not to preach the gospel. Rather, it is a reason to preach the gospel even more fervently because Christ possesses people in this city whom he will save and bring into his fold. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Number four, Jesus assures us to persist in gospel ministry by keeping his promises. 
by keeping his promises. This is what we see Jesus do in verses 12 through 17. Jesus keeps the promise that he made to Paul. Jesus was faithful to Paul, faithful to keep his promises, faithful to keep all of his promises. Do you know Jesus' faithfulness to you? Have you seen him keep his promises to you, dear Christian? Do you rest on the fact that your Redeemer is faithful and true? Verses 12 through 17 are meant to demonstrate to us that Jesus does precisely what he promises he will do. But you might object and say, how can I say this since here Paul is attacked? Jesus promised that Paul would not be attacked, right? But notice Jesus says, attack you to harm you in verse 10. So here the Jews attempt a united attack on Paul by bringing him to the pro-council of the region named Gallio. It is here they accuse Paul while Gallio sits on his judgment seat. They say that Paul is trying to persuade the people to worship contrary to the law. They're saying it's unlawful for Paul to be doing what he is doing. That's their complaint. But then look what happens. Paul is about to open up his mouth, but he doesn't even get the chance. Gallio speaks up. Gallio must be a quick talker because we know from scriptures Paul has a lot to say. God so intervenes in the event that this Roman Gentile official actually comes to Paul's defense and says, if Paul had actually done something wrong, a vicious crime, he would take care of it. But since it's a squabble over words and names, it's not worth his judgment or even his time to hear the case. He throws it out without a second thought, which tells us Christianity can be and was protected under the Roman law, and that Christianity was not unlawful to practice. With an astounding turn of events, even though the intent was to attack and to harm Paul, it completely backfires, and Paul is left unharmed and unstopped, just as Jesus had promised him. And I think we see just the intent of the Jews there as well. Because what do they do at the very end? There's that man named Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, whom they turn around and then they beat him. They're looking to beat somebody. They're looking to harm somebody. They're going to find somebody. And they found Sosthenes, maybe because it's even Sosthenes' plan that backfired. Jesus was faithful to do what he promised to do. Do we need to hear afresh the words of assurance that Jesus provides Paul? Do we see our need of these words because we are in need of assurance? Assurance when faced with frustration? Assurance when overwhelming fear has so gripped our minds? Assurance when discouraging doubt attempts to overtake us? Assurance of knowing that He is with us. That He has finally protected us from the wrath of God. That He has a plan and that there are many of His people all around us 
and that he is faithful to keep his promises so that you can completely depend upon him. With such an assurance from Jesus Christ himself, what can stop us persisting in gospel ministry? Nothing, as we remain faithful to him and to the spread of his glory. Let's pray. Father, let us hear your words of assurance to us this morning comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let these words fill our minds, take over our hearts, to cast out fear. And that we would long to see Christ's people, Christ's sheep. People who don't even know Christ yet. To come to Him. To believe in Him. And may they hear the voice of the Good Shepherd come to them through our proclamation of the gospel to them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.